Welcome back to the podcast of the River Anglican Church in Blacksburg, Virginia. Today, Jonathan talks about what happens when worldviews come into conflict. So here's Jonathan. Well, good morning. So it's great to be with you. We have some, some sound challenges this morning, but that should not be surprising, being that we have baptisms today. It seems like whenever we have something exciting and special, like people uh, being baptized, that there's some drama. I do want to say I'm super excited to have Brian Lamb with us. Wow. He was here early on in the River's life, and he's been overseas for quite a while. So please say hi to Brian. And Brian, we're so excited to have you here this morning. So, um, so I'm excited about the, the uh, topic today um, because last week we began this series entitled The Other Worldview. And it's based on a book by Peter Jones that we are getting the word out about. We sold out of these books last week, so you'll unfortunately have to buy it on Amazon if you're going to do so. But we talked about um, how this series uh, is going to work, and if you have a bulletin with you, I just want to mention the sheet that's in the bulletin that should be in the bulletin, but isn't there. Okay, it's not. Well, don't worry about the sheet then, um, because that sheet uh, that we handed out is also on e-news. We handed out last week first in the last couple of weeks, uh, really kind of goes through how we're doing the series. We will go ahead and email that out to you as well. So we talked about Peter last week, and I'm just going to do a little bit of review. Peter Jones' biography. We talked about what is a worldview, why they matter. And we read this quote by Peter Reichen that I want to read to you again, because if you weren't here last week, I want to use Reichen's definition of worldviews. So he says, a worldview, or a world and life view, as some call it, is the structure of understanding that we use to make sense of our world. Our worldview is what we presuppose. It's a way of looking at life, our interpretation of the universe, our orientation to reality. It's the comprehensive framework of our belief, basic belief about things. So we talked about that worldviews matter because oftentimes we don't even realize that we have one. They're subtle. They're uncontested, um, yet they're very powerful. Last week was uh, 9-11 when we remember that there were uh, 19 Al-Qaeda operatives who had a really uh, different worldview than, than most of the world. And they drove four planes into the World Trade Center as a result. So worldviews are important, and they drive uh, thinking and behavior. Finally, we talked about the biblical story of the Apostle Paul and how he went from Saul to Paul and in his conversion was a radical change in Paul's understanding about who Christ is and about what truth is and where it's to be found and what is salvation. So if you miss our sermons, please go to our website and uh, you can get caught up. Also, by the way, if you haven't done the reading for this week, uh, you know, you're not going to get a pass or fail grade this morning. You don't have to worry about it. We're not going to ask you not to take communion because we didn't do the reading this morning. Uh, but it, we really are encouraging you to read along, so get caught up. Buy the book on Amazon. It's only like $37, $39 or something really expensive. But uh, seriously, get the book and stay along because this is such an important series. So in terms of structure, we're going to talk about three questions today. The first is, what's the problem? Second, what have been people's reactions and solutions to the problem? And finally, who are we called to be and what are we called to do? So first, what is the problem? And this is where I kind of just walk us through Peter Jones and his thinking about uh, the problem. So Peter Jones says that there's ultimately two ways to view the world, and this kind of is a theme that runs through the whole book. He calls it one-ism and two-ism. 
So oneism believes that essentially the cosmos, the world, and God are one, with spirituality being something that's subjective and personal. Oneism minimizes any differences really between God and matter, humans and animals, genders, differences between religions and spiritualities. Oneism says essentially if you believe it, then it's true for you. It is radical pluralism. Um, and so oneism often is hostile towards religions like Christianity that, treat, that say that there is an absolute truth that's truly true even though oneism itself has absolute truths in it. Twoism, on the other hand, asserts a belief in objective truth. It claims that there is a transcendent God who is not of our making. He is our creator and we are his creation. This God can and has communicated his will and his plans and his desires. To Peter Jones, these two worldviews are what he seeks to expound and to expose and to explain. Here's what he writes. He says this, Either the transcendent creator is at the origin of everything created and sustains it all, or the universe itself and all its seeming variety is all there is. And in either case, whether we worship nature or the maker of nature, we are dealing with a statement of faith and an expression of worship. We cannot step out of the universe to find an objective point of view. We make a faith decision between these two alternatives, and there are only two. So chapters one and two go into how we got to where we are. It goes through the history. It goes through um, uh, an explanation of kind of what's happened socially and philosophically and so forth. And it explains how a country that was built upon theism, a belief in a creator God, even if it was theistic and not Christocentric, even if it wasn't Christ-centered, it was God, and there was a belief in a creator God, how this culture has been so shaped and changed by oneism. In this chapter, or in these chapters, he mentioned several key figures who have impacted uh, oneistic American spirituality. He talks about Andrew Cohen, Father Thomas Keating, Carl Jung, and many more. So if I've intrigued you and perhaps even offended you, I want to encourage you to buy the book. I'm trying to get you, you know, thinking and engaging with this topic. So he wrote, let me just say a few more things before we go to the second point. Jones describes the roots and rise of secular humanism. And he traces it from the 17th century to the present and to its very, its tributaries, which include liberal Protestantism. He is factual, he's unemotional, he's academic, and basically he explains the figures and forces and movements in a way that I think is very palatable without being, uh, you know, too kind of biased. So if I could pick a quote to summarize Jones' thoughts on how we got to where we are, here's what it would be. It's a little bit long, but bear with me. He says, so what is secularism and what is secular humanism? And what has it become? It is now known under other names. As an intellectual discipline, it's called philosophical materialism. As a social movement, it's known as modernity. As somewhat religious expression, it's known as atheism. As political theory, it's practiced as Marxism. For many people, it is an unthought-out default way of living, as if God does not exist. 
All these expressions of secularism reject the supernatural as a holdover from very kind of superstitious and primitive faith systems. Without any reference to God, secularism attempts to describe rationally the whole existence from a this-worldly materialistic perspective, with the human being at the center of existence. Thus, all these expressions of secular humanism can be called oneist because they seek to describe the world by the world, using this worldly human reason with no reference to an external, transcendent creator, making reason, and this is one of the keys to oneistic thought, making my reason the ultimate center and form of worship. So let me just say that this change from twoism to oneism isn't obviously just another fact in the last few hundred years. It's occurred in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, where there were kind of periods of time, like under King David, when everything was right and there was peace in the land and people, you know, people believed in this and that, and then all of a sudden you see people worshiping Baal and, and worshiping on the high places and beginning to go back to their many gods. And so this isn't the first time this has happened, it's happened several times, but some of these changes occur over a short period of time and some over a long period of time, some are very subtle, some are very overt. And as we look at scripture, it was the New Testament in which we read how Jesus' disciples began to establish churches. Paul, for example, established a church at Ephesus and he entrusted Timothy with this church. And though the church was blessed with many new young converts, there was thinking and what one might call heresy creeping in. And Paul knew that with only one degree of wrong, that people could turn 180 degrees, just with one, one slice of wrong theology in a major doctrine. And so he wrote 1st and 2nd Timothy to warn and guide Timothy as well as people under his care. And here's what he said. If you want to turn to a, a Bible or a phone, or just listen, that's fine. But this is going to be the central text I'm going to focus on. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says this. Beginning in verse 1, 2 Timothy 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, in view of his appearing into his kingdom, I give you this charge, Timothy. Preach the word. Be prepared in season, out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and with careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, <clears throat> there we go, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So I want to just focus on this passage for a minute. Beginning in verse 3, he says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. So this phrase, sound doctrine, who you know, just didaskal, I say that like five times, but you know, zest is in your mouth, but are they zestas? Is that communicated? Saltines. Okay. So, <clears throat> these two words mean true teaching, wholesome instruction. 
And Paul was referring to the fact that there was a body of teaching that Jesus gave his disciples, and his disciples were to give his disciples oral tradition, and eventually became uh, written down and codified. And earlier in this letter, Paul referred to this generational instruction, this, this code of teaching, this corpus of teaching. And he said this in 2 Timothy 2.2. He said, the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. In other words, there was a body of knowledge that came from Jesus to his immediate disciples and so forth. Weeks ago, Chris Meckley reminded us in Acts 2.42 that, and I'm going to, here's going to be the quiz, that the early church community devoted themselves to what? Prayer. What else? Sorry? Gathering. Gathering? Good. There were four things. Apostles teaching. Thank you. The didache, the, the didascalos, the body, the corpus of knowledge, apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. And so this, this apostle's teaching was well known. The word was used several times that there was a corpus of teaching. And so how can you teach people doctrine? How can you teach people sound doctrine if there's not unsound doctrine? How can you teach them truth if there's not error? And in 1 Timothy 4, back to the text, Paul says this, verse 3, Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around themselves a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. I was just curious, like, what is itching ears? So I looked it up. It's like a tickling ear. It's like, ooh, itchy, itchy, ear. You know, it's like someone who wants to hear pleasant things all the time. Now, does this resonate with what our, what's happening in our culture? People want to hear just nice things, love. We don't, you know, we don't want to offend anybody. It's just all about some, you know, people's sensibilities. And the reason people accept teaching that is not from God, not in alignment with who God is, or, or what he said, is because it suits our desires. It makes us feel comfortable. It matches our goals. It allows us to be unaccountable. It permits what is not permitted. It blesses what is not blessed to be blessed. It enables us to escape being accountable. It often keeps the benefits of Christianity, like salvation, while it cheapens what it costs us. It changes what it requires. It is what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. I want the benefits of God without the cost. And according to Paul, he says, people gather around themselves a great number of teachers to say what their engineers want to hear. They have these, we, we want these pleasant words, but not truthful words. It's a religion of Oprah, so to speak, where we're to be kind and loving to one another, but we get to define what kind and loving is, not what God says kindness and love really is. How can we define kindness and love without an objective definition of what truth is? The idea here is that Christianity should be constantly accommodating, never insulting our modern sensibilities, Always a religion of total acceptance and affirmation, as long as what people say is acceptable to me. Are you guys getting this? It's just the spirit of the age, as Paul would call it. And the result is we begin to turn a religion that God has said this is what this is what Christianity is into a religion of our own making, 
because we have got itching ears that just want to hear pleasant things about ourselves. And the result is we make our own faith. Verse 4, he says, they will turn their ears away from the truth. Right? We don't want to hear the truth and turn aside to myths. What is a myth? It is a religion. And so, some people might say that they're Christian, but as you really dial down to where is truth found, how do we find truth, what is truth, you find that they've actually taken just the, the cultural uh, you know, aspects of Christian Christianity and the theological stuff is no longer Christian. So it's a form of godliness, but we've denied it of its power. And we've made God into our image rather than submit ourselves to God. We've conformed to his words to our lives rather than our lives to his words. And this is what Paul's getting at to Rome. So he says this to several different communities because it's a problem all over where the gospel is being spread. He says to the Romans in chapter 16, I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ with their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. And friend, that's very much a description of what has happened in Christendom, is the deceiving of, of naive minds. So of course this was a problem in Old Testament, New Testament, it was a problem when Jones was writing this book, I believe it was seven years ago, and, and so he's you know, formulating those thoughts over a decade or more, and now it's a problem today. And so doctrines like the authority of Scripture um, are deconstructed and reinterpreted uh, and softened. So I had this story, I had this experience that perfectly kind of demonstrates this once. I was talking with a woman and she said, you know, I really, really, I really appreciate Jesus. I appreciate who he is. In fact, I love Jesus. But I just don't see the Bible as something that I can trust. And in a, like, infrequent burst of sudden intelligence, I actually responded to her, well, how do we know who Christ is except through Scripture? How can we say we love Jesus when you don't believe what Scripture says that Jesus is and said. And she quickly just shut the well, you know, I don't know. She quickly shut down the conversation because she realized that her oneness, her oneistic theology had been exposed. Friends, as a theological principle, you and I need to hear, Satan does not need to attack the church, per se, or you, per se, but he will just attack Scripture. And when he attacks the authority and the efficacy and the sufficiency and the inspiration of Scripture, then the church has no foundation, nothing to preach upon, nothing to have authority and power. Well, second, and this is a much briefer point, because that was just my first point. <laughs> but second, and much briefer, what has been people's reactions and solutions? Well, I just wanted to kind of call out that there have been three different types of reactions and solutions. The first is just an emotional one. How do we react when we feel like our faith is beginning to decay and be attacked and uh, where stuff that people believed and we thought, oh, this is normative, changes? I think there's a, an emotional response, and that's shock. You know, I can't believe this is happening, right? 
and anger, and then we begin to vilify and villainize people and, and say, you know, they're just awful, blah, blah, blah. We, we might even mention groups of people, talk about liberals and progressives and all this kind of stuff, and we begin to polarize, you know, and talk about people in groups, and, and then we begin to isolate ourselves, and we find ourselves even feeling like a sense of violence, maybe not physical violence, but emotional and verbal violence. We grieve, and grieve we should. But some people, conversely, just feel like, well, I'm just going to give in. I, mean, I don't like conflict. I'm just going to affirm and kind of go along with these changes. Those are emotional reactions. But secondly, there's social and relational reactions. You know, there's a social reaction of like, um, we're, going to, we're going to pray. We're going to encourage. We're going to exhort. We're going to isolate. These are all kind of social reactions to when we feel like there's such conflict in our faith. And third, and finally, there's spiritual, theological, and ecclesiastical, which is that big word for church. And this is where I want to just mention, as I begin to wrap up here, this fellow by the name of uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. And sorry, I said Richard Niebuhr. It is Reinhold. Anybody know? Okay, Reinhold. Okay, here we go. I'll get the thumbs up. Okay. I, I put down here Richard, but I thought, no, it's Reinhold. But anyway, he wrote a book in 1951 called Christ and Culture. It was like a massive seminal book. I'm sure in every field there's like that book that begins to shape the roots of, you know, engineering or medicine or whatever field you're in. And in this book, he identified that there are really five theologies that people form about how Christ related to culture and how we are to relate to culture. Bear with me, this is good stuff. He identifies these five. I'm just going to talk briefly about each one. But the first, the first theology uh, is Christ against culture. You'll recognize this right away because it's you know it's it's in full force today. So all expressions of culture outside the church have a high degree of suspicion and are inseparably corrupt from sin. They're to be withdrawn from, avoided as much as possible, or in, like in nationalism, overthrown in Christian nationalism. Traditional communities that are more monastic, as well as very sectarian fundamentalist groups, hold to some version of this view, as would, for example, right wing nationalism. The second is Christ of culture. Christ of culture is just completely the opposite. Cultural expressions are accepted without criticism and celebrated. In theory, there's little or no conflict seen between who culture is, no matter what it's thinking, and Christian truth. And in practice, there's an incredible pressure to accommodate from the church. And this, of course, is a view that's espoused more by liberal Protestantism. Third is Christ above culture. And this is a really interesting one that may be foreign to some of us, but this is a view Christ above culture regards cultural expression as basically good. But it needs to be augmented and perfected by Christian, Christian revelation and by the work of the church, mainly the work of the church in, in purification and sacramentalism. So it tends to put church tradition and the purity of certain forms of worship as higher priorities than discipleship and mission. And this is a, pardon me, a view that was expounded by Thomas Aquinas. It's been a, a predominant position among Anglo-Catholics and Roman Catholics and Orthodox. And there's a very, very high kind of uh, high practice placed on Jesus being divine 
but not Jesus being man, not about God being transcendent, but not the imminence of, of Christ. Fourth, there's Christ in culture and paradox. And Christ in culture and paradox is another option between the extremes of one and two, you know, against culture and of culture. It sees human culture as good, but it's been tainted by sin, and as a result, there's a tension in the Christian's relationship to culture, simultaneously embracing it, but rejecting certain aspects of it. Augustine, in part, as well as Martin Luther, would represent this view. And fifth and finally, Christ, the transformer of culture. Thank you, I know this is a lot, but I think this is really important as we kind of move through this book. So Christ, the transformer of culture. So it recognizes that human culture is initially good, but it was transformed or corrupted by the fall. But since Christ is redemptive, the Christian canon should work to transform culture, or transform people and culture to the glory of God. This would be Augustine as well as many of the Anglican and Reformed traditions. And so I want to say as I close here, which of these views does align and does not align with Scripture? But it's suffice it to say that it's important that we understand these views and we can see who we are in these views. And here's my, here's, here's my application. What are we called to be and what are we called to do? And the first is we're to be in the world, but not of the world. Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> we're to be in the world, but not of the world. So, like Jesus, we are to be with Jesus where people are who do not know Jesus, but we are not to be like they are. We're not to be Christ of culture. We're not to be accommodating and listening and taking our cues and our truths from culture. Because although Jesus said, go into the world, it was John who said, do not love the world or anything in the world. Second, we're to not be surprised when other people do not understand us, when they do not accept us, when they are offended by us, which many people are when you hold a view that is contrary to what they believe. There is an emotional, verbal, relational violence that happens when Christians stand for certain things in culture. And we should not be surprised. Jesus said in Luke 6, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, and they reject you as evil because of the Son of Man. Isn't that interesting? When they reject you as evil, how can you believe that? In John 17, we read this, that Jesus prayed to his Father about us, about his disciples. He said, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. My prayer is that you protect them from the evil one. So we're not to be shocked or offended when the world is put off by us. And yet we're to have this winsomeness by which we win the hearts, like Paul said, you know, win the hearts of those who did not know Christ. Paul said it this way, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity towards outsiders. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And then finally, as we wrap up here, we are to lovingly engage people while standing firm in what we believe. 
We're not to be adapting again our views to the opinions of others or the pressures or even the indignation of those around us. Neither are we to be Christ over culture, which stresses the divinity of Christ while minimizing the imminence and the humanity and uh, the missional Christ in the world. This is a model that is, is faulty. Rather, I would stress that we are a combination of number four and number five. Indeed, we are a people in paradox. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. Two truths side by side. We're to be like Jesus, who impacted other people, but also not conform to what they think. We are so, also are to be Christ-transforming culture, which is number five. And how do we do this? How do we transform culture? Because we are not conformed, we are transformed. Romans 12 says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Get that, do not conform to the pattern, the mold, the template of this world, but be transformed, literally metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind. And finally, Matthew 5, 13, Jesus reminds us, you, and this is so appropriate, especially with these baptisms today, as we pray and celebrate these folks who come forward for baptism. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, if we start preserve, if we stop preserving what Christ has given us to preserve, how can it be made salty again? Friends, that salt, when that happened in, in, in that Bible time, it was literally just thrown out in the street. He says, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Let's pray together. Lord, I realize this is so much. And I realize this book is could be hard, could, could be so much information at one time. I pray you give us the ability to not react to it emotionally, one way or the other. Help us to give the ability just to listen and to keep an open mind. Lord, thank you for the scripture and the reminder that there is a corpus of teaching, there is sound doctrine, there is wholesome teaching that we are to, that we've been handed down by Jesus to disciple after disciple. Generation after generation, our faithful people have given us the ancient words that we have. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful, like Paul said, in the presence of many witnesses, to entrust that word to people who entrust it to other people. Lord, we thank you for the people who've come forward today to be baptized, and we pray that they would live out uh, these scriptures. We pray that they would have love with boldness, but they would also not accommodate to the views and the opinions and the pressures of this world. Help us to support and love them well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for this sermon from the River Anglican Church. You can find us on the web at theriverinrv.org, also on Facebook, and you can join us in person if you like on Sunday mornings at 9.15 at 110 Roanoke Street East, Blacksburg, Virginia, 24060. We hope to see you again next week.